You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. This morning, wonderfully, we get to spend more time in God's Word. So let's open up our Bibles to the Book of Acts, chapter 5. And, um, well, to be honest, it's a heavy text we have in front of us this morning. So let's pray before we get at it. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for the, well, Lord, what we might think are the easier passages. And we thank you for the more challenging passages. And Lord, this morning, we want to let the challenge of this text in front of us hit us with everything that your spirit would bring to us this morning. So do it, Lord. We invite you to speak to us through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember where we've been in the book of Acts, we've seen a season of remarkable progress in the church. You might even call it unstoppable progress. Ever since the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost, what well, I mean, the converts have been numbered in the thousands, not in the hundreds. And opposition came against the church. Oh, the religious establishment of Israel of that day. They came against Peter and John for doing what? For... for Seeing a man healed in the name of Jesus on the Temple Mount and for proclaiming the name of the risen Jesus there. And that got them into trouble with the religious leadership. And they brought all the force, all the intimidation, all the pressure they could dare to bring against them. And you know what it accomplished against Peter and John and the work of Jesus? A big fat zero. Just nothing. I mean, you would not be blamed at the end of chapter 4 for thinking... Man, this work that God is doing through these followers of Jesus, it is unstoppable. They love one another. They share what they have with each other. Nobody has need. Thousands are coming into the kingdom. It's just beautiful. And then comes chapter 5. Let's read it here, the first two verses. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession... And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let's remember the context. The context here is the remarkable generosity of the early church. And we spoke about that last week. We talked about how the Holy Spirit came down upon the church, not only on the day of Pentecost, but but in the succeeding experiences as well. And the great evidence of the Holy Spirit's work among them, not the only evidences, but three that we saw last week, was they had just a, a, a remarkable boldness, to, to bring out the message. They, they had a remarkable unity, but they also had a remarkable generosity. And that generosity was illustrated by, by whenever there was a need, people didn't go without. And, and people who had things in the church would just sell it and meet the need. And at the very end of chapter 4, there's one guy noted for his remarkable generosity, a man named Barnabas, how, how he sold a piece of property that he had, and he came and he just left the, the, the gift at the apostles' feet, said, here, this is for the work of the church, for God's kingdom, you guys do with it, whatever you want. And, and there at the end of chapter 4, he got some attention for that, Right? If I could be so... He got his name in the Bible for a gift that he made, right? So that, that's pretty good. 
Well, there were some people among the early Christians who saw the attention and the acclaim that Barnabas received. And they said, I want some of that. I want people to look at me the way they looked at Barnabas. I want people to, just as they heard about Barnabas's gift and said, ooh, I want them to say the same thing about me. This was a married couple. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. So what did they do? Well, it says right there, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. They saw the great generosity of Barnabas. They saw how highly he was respected. And they decided that they wanted to receive that same respect. So what did they do? They sold a piece of property that they had. And they brought some of that money to the apostles. But it says very clearly there that he kept back part of the proceeds there in the first two verses. You see, they sold the possession and only gave a portion of it to the church. But they implied that they had sacrificially given it all to the church. You say, well, where does it say that they implied that they gave it all? It's a little bit technical. But right there in the first two verses where it says that he kept back part of the proceeds. The ancient Greek word that we translate kept back there. It actually means to misappropriate or to steal. The only other time that that Greek word is used in the, in the New Testament, it's translated to steal. And that's in Titus chapter 2 verse 10. You see, so get the picture clear in your mind. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this piece of real estate, they, they, they take the money, and they give a portion of, I don't know what the portion was, 80%, 50%, 30%, I don't know. They took a proportion of it, they gave that proportion to the church, and they kept back, they stole, so to speak, misappropriated the proportion that they kept for themselves. If you notice it here, and it also says in verse 2 that his wife also being aware of it. Clearly, both Ananias and Sapphira were partners in this deception. They both wanted the image of great generosity without actually being remarkably generous. Now, we got to understand very clearly what the lesson is and what the lesson isn't here. The lesson here is not... Ananias and Sapphira show us that you should give everything or that you should give more to the church. Now, maybe some people do need to give more, but, but they should do so because they've talked to God about it and God has stirred their life. Listen, it's very important that we understand that giving in the church should never be motivated out of guilt or manipulation. You talk to God about your giving. And if God wants you to give more, he'll tell you. But can I just say something? There's something wrong if you're afraid to talk to God about your giving. Right? Some of us, we don't want to go there with God. Well, Lord, you know, you know how much I give, so let's just leave it at that. Well, why don't you talk to God about it? I mean, really seek the Lord about it. And, and, and maybe he would have you make a change in it. But you just talk to God about it. Don't do it out of guilt. Don't do it out of manipulation. But you do it out of bold trust in God after talking to him about it. But that's not the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. 
You see, I don't know what it was with them. Maybe they never intended to give it all. Maybe they intended to do so, but held some back after they saw how much the land was sold for. Can't you imagine that? Hey, honey, let's sell this land and give it to the Lord. Okay, great, let's do it. And they sold it and cha-ching, they see how much they get for it. They go, wow, well, you know, I mean, it was great to give God X amount, but X plus Y? Let's just give God X amount. You see how that would work. But please understand this. The fundamental issue here was not an issue of generosity. It was an issue of honesty. Yet make no mistake about it. Their lack of honesty was used to cover up greed. Why were they dishonest? Because they wanted more money in their pocket, in their account, and not to give it unto the Lord. Now, I just say this because I want to make a point that's very obvious, but we certainly need to make it from time to time. Friends, money and how we deal with it, it is a deeply spiritual issue. Now, I know many people don't like it when the church talks about money, and I understand that. And I think it's somewhat, I don't know what the right word is, disgraceful to act as if God is poor and you need to help God out and all the time about giving, giving, on and on and on. I understand that and I sympathize with it completely. But on the other hand, I think that the church should talk about money a lot. Do you know why? Because isn't it a key discipleship issue in our age? Aren't there a lot of people whose hearts are far from God because they're in love with money? It would almost be like this, to say this, the church will never talk about sexual morality. Say, are you kidding in our day and age? When it's such an important issue from discipleship standpoint, it would be the same thing for saying the church should never talk about money. No, I agree, the church should, should not be uh, always talking about money in the sense of give more, give more, give more. Good heavens. Again, to act as if God is poor and we need to help him out in that way. No, 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 no. But money as a discipleship issue, very important. And that's exactly what the problem here was with Ananias and Sapphira in that regard. Their real problem was honesty, not generosity, but it was honesty connected to greed. And as a fundamental lack of honesty was used by them to cover up their greed, isn't a fundamental lack of honesty used by us to cover up a lot of things in our lives? Don't we do it all the time? Greed, lust, addiction, fear, hatred, whatever. We use this fundamental lack of honesty to cover these things up. And if I could speak frankly, I would just say, sometimes church is the worst place for that, isn't it? It certainly was for Ananias and Sapphira. I asked a man who's worked with many churches whose leaders have gone off the rails. And the leaders have had some kind of scandal exposed, some kind of blow up, some kind of disaster. And I asked him, hey, was there anything in common among all these churches where this happened or among all these pastors? And he said, well, I can name for you immediately two things that were in common among all these guys. He said, one, and I'm paraphrasing his words, but I think I'm giving you the idea of what he said. Number one was isolation. They, they just isolated themselves. 
to where they were just, you know, people unto themselves. And they didn't have real people that they interacted with. So isolation was one of them. And the other one was compartmentalization. In other words, they just told themselves, well, yeah, I'm doing this in this area, but it doesn't touch this area. And I thought about those two things, both of those things, isolation and compartmentalization, they, they all contribute to the fundamental kind of dishonesty that Ananias and Sapphira showed, right? Because in isolation, nobody's calling them on it. In compartmentalization, you're, you're excusing it in yourself. But man, that's the heavy thing for Ananias and Sapphira. So look at the confrontation here in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not on your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. I, I wish, I wish we could see this on some kind of videotape. Because don't you think Peter's tone of voice meant a lot here? What what was Peter screaming at Ananias? You know, uh, almost throttling him with his words. I don't believe so. I believe this was spoken almost more out of disbelief and pain on Peter's part. Ananias, what are you doing? Why would you do such a thing? Matter of fact, he says it very dramatically there in there in verse three. Why has Satan filled your heart? Apparently, God gave Peter what we would call in another place in the New Testament, the gift of knowledge, supernatural knowledge to know what was going on. He just knew he knew. and, And when Peter said this, Ananias must have been crushed. Ananias expected praise from the leadership for what is, they expected applause. Oh, look, just like Barnabas received all the, look at, now Ananias and Sapphira are doing, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they lovely? But instead of being praised, he was rebuked. As a matter of fact, Peter saw that Satan was at work, even though a man numbered among believers like Ananias was doing it. Peter looked and he goes, you know what? The devil's at work here, Ananias. Now, because this sin was lusting after public praise for his generosity, I think it was appropriate that the sin was exposed publicly. Which, of course, isn't true with every sin, right? But in this one, where the root of the sin was the public acclaim that they were desiring... It was important that Peter call him this on it publicly. And he said those heavy words, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Did you notice this? Uh, Peter did not accuse Ananias of lying to the church or even to the apostles, but to the Holy Spirit himself. And just as a side issue, I would say, would you please notice that Peter clearly had it in his mind that the Holy Spirit is a person and that the Holy Spirit is God. Because he says later there in verse 4, you haven't lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God. But he says something else of great interest there in verse 4, where he says, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Listen, Peter saying to Ananias, listen, the land and its value, it belongs to you guys. 
You're completely free to do with it what you want. Ananias, your crime is not in withholding the money, but in deceptively trying to imply that you gave it all to the church. Now again, of course you could say that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was greed in keeping the money, but his greater sin was pride, wanting everybody to consider him so spiritual when he gave it all, but in fact he had not. He was singing that hymn, I surrender all. All the while calculating in his mind, well, okay, I've actually surrendered 60% and keeping 40% for myself, right? And his pride. He wanted people to look at him in a certain way when that wasn't true in his life. We've got to be honest, that sin is imitated in so many ways today. Isn't it easy for us to create or to allow the impression that we are people of Bible reading or people of prayer when we're not? We create or we allow the impression that we have it all together when we don't. I mean, how common is it? Now, I don't mean to be cruel on this point just because it's so common. But I wonder how many people here this morning, you, you and your wife driving to church, you are fighting like cats and dogs driving to church, right? Oh, come now. Don't act like it never happens. You're fighting like cats and dogs when you get to church, but you pull into the parking lot and wow, just the, the magical veil goes over, right? And everything's fine. Now look, I, please, we're not begging you to bring your argument into the church lobby. That's not the point. The, the point is just this. When somebody comes and asks you, or says, hey, well, how's it going today? And you just say, fine. Now that, that's the point where I think you should just say, would you just pray for us for a moment? We kind of had a hard morning. Now would anybody think less of you for doing so? No. But we think they would, right? And so we just sort of put on the veneer. We, we can uh, exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments or effectiveness and appear to be something that we're not. It's far too easy to be happy with the image of spirituality without the reality of spiritual life. And this is exactly where it hits us. And all of that thirsting, all of that satisfaction with image instead of reality, that great sin is rooted in pride. And pride will corrupt the church more quickly than anything else. But, but notice what Peter said to him there in verse 4. He said, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Listen, it shows how unnecessary the sin was. Ananias, you've got the freedom to use that money for whatever you want. It's yours. Sell the piece of land. Do you want to take a vacation to Rome? Take a vacation to Rome. Do you want to give it to your children? Give it to your children. You, you can use that money. Do you want to use half of it for this and half of it for something? Do it. It's yours. It's under your control. Ananias, you can use that money for anything except as a way to inflate your spiritual image and pride. That you can't use it for. 
So he said, Ananias, you conceived this thing in your heart. I love that question there at the end of verse 4. He says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Now, I love kind of the interplay between verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, Satan has filled your heart. In verse 4, he conceived this thing in his heart. You see, Satan can influence the life of the believer, even what we would call a spirit-filled believer. But you know what? The devil can never do your sinning for you. Ananias had to conceive it in his own heart, right? And so what happened? Verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Those are some of the heaviest verses of the New Testament. Don't you agree? Right there, right then, Peter confronts Ananias with his sin, and the man drops down dead. Now, please understand, Peter did not pronounce a death sentence upon Ananias, right? Peter did not say, and thou, Ananias, I strikest thee dead in the name of the Lord. No, no. He just told him the truth. He just confronted him with his sin. No, no, no. It isn't the business of the church to pronounce a death sentence on anybody. And I think Peter was more surprised than anyone else when Ananias fell down dead. Don't you think? Peter go, oh, my heavens. Man, that, that would be tough. And he fell down and breathed his last. You know, there, there, there's some really creative pastors out there who who are, are illustrating their messages with a lot of props and a lot of, you know, things. And I I'm really don't have that creative spark, but we did think, how could you illustrate this this morning, right? You know, there's the coroner's wagon parked out front when you walk into church. Or there's a police, you know, sort of a CSI team here analyzing off in the corner. little chalk outline on the floor of the thing or... Or, or we're a body bag up here on the platform, something like that. Now, you know, we, we laugh about it because it's, it's nervous to us, right? It's nervous to think that, that God would do such a thing or allow such a thing. This was a harsh penalty for a sin that seems very common today. And some people wonder if God was not excessively harsh against Ananias. I think that the greater wonder is that God delays his righteous judgment in virtually all other cases. You see, Ananias received exactly what he deserved. He simply could not live in the atmosphere of purity that marked the church at the time. And I don't think that God so much pronounced a death sentence upon Ananias. I think that the physical means of the death of Ananias was probably a heart attack caused by the sudden shock or terror of having his sin found out. He expected applause. And when he was confronted, why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you conceived it in your heart? That the shock was just too much for him. You see, he lived in a time and among a people who really believed that there was a God in heaven that, that we all have to answer to. And it frightened him to think that his sin was exposed and made known and, and that he would be accountable before God for it all. He didn't yawn. He didn't debate. He didn't do something like that when he was confronted with his sin. No, he fell down and breathed his last. And at that critical juncture in the early church, 
When, when a little bit of corruption could have corrupted the work of God throughout all the generations, God was especially zealous for the purity of the early church. And as it says right there, he fell down and breathed his last. The shock of being exposed was too much for Ananias. And Ananias is just like a lot of Christians who have lived in compromise. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'll speak to you frankly. I've been in that place in my life at different times. For many Christians who have lived lives of compromise, their greatest fear is not in the sinning itself, but in being found out. And isn't that strange? That we wouldn't be so afraid to sin, but we'd be deeply afraid of being found out. As much as anything, the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira is that we presume greatly upon God when we assume that there's always time to repent. There's always time to get right with God. And I think about it. Look, if I'm speaking to so many people here this morning, I just have to think that just statistically speaking, I don't have some kind of prophetic word about it this morning, but I'll just say statistically speaking, that there's probably some people here this morning, you're in serious sin and compromise, and you know it. Maybe not a single other person in this room knows it, but you know it. And you mean to get it right with God, but this is what you're telling yourself. Yeah, I'll get it right with God, but later. A few more weeks, a few more months, another year in what I'm doing, and then I'll get it right with God. Don't you see what the story of Ananias and Sapphira tells you? Why do you presume that you'll have time? Why don't you sense a greater urgency to say, right now, today, I'm going to get it right with God. Any such time that God gives you, it's the undeserved gift of his grace that he owes no one. You should never assume that it's always going to be there. And if you look at the result of it all right there in verse 6, it says, So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. That's a good thing, is it not? I don't want to say that the death of Ananias was a good thing, but I will say that God used it for a good purpose. God's purpose was accomplished in the church as a whole. And this was evidence of a great work of God among his people. You know, one of the great men of our day that I really like to read, and I've just been attracted to his ministry. He's been home with Jesus now for more than 20 years. But his name was Dr. J. Edwin Orr. And the last sermon that Dr. J. Edwin Orr ever preached was a sermon titled, Revival is Like Judgment Day. And in that sermon, he describes how the coming of revival is almost always marked by a radical work of God in dealing with the sins of believers. I'll read you a quote. He says, now now put this in a modern context. If this had happened today, he's talking about Ananias and Sapphira. He's saying, if this has happened today, we would have had a cover-up committee. Don't let it get out to the public. And you can take heart. This may be a surprise to you, but you can take heart when God exposes things. One of the outcomes was that when God was vindicated, the work gained strength again. Or, Or let me read you another quote from this. He says this, William Castle from Sichuan in China said, Revival means Judgment Day. That's what happened in Shantung. Uh, Judgment on missionaries, pastors, people, and then fear fell on the world and God's name was glorified. And people have such a wrong idea of what revival means. They think of revival as something triumphant and shall we say the overflow of great blessing. 
It's judgment day for the church. But after the judgment and after things are settled, it's blessing abounding. Well, I think about this. I think about this in context, right? Many people pray for revival, and that's a good thing to pray for. But I think many times when people pray for revival, they have a completely misconception in their minds what revival is. They think of revival purely as a season of spiritual excitement. And who doesn't want that? Wouldn't that be great? But if you think of revival, at least in its beginning stages, as a time of deep and radical cleansing of the church... If God were to read our hearts accurately, many hearts would cry out to God and say, God, please do not send revival. Not now. Maybe send in a few months or some later time, but not not now. So you see the result there in verse 6. Excuse me, in verse, uh, it says, Great fear came upon all those who heard these things, verse 5. Now starting, uh, verse 7. So it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Isn't that clear that Sapphira was a knowing and willing participant in the sin as well as the blatant cover-up? God's judgment of her was just as righteous as her judgment of Ananias. Matter of fact, I think there's a very tragic phrase there in verse uh, 9 where he says to her, you have agreed together. Now, I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira had a good marriage or a bad marriage. We don't know if they agreed together a lot or if they fought together a lot. But I do know this, that they agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. That's a bad part of agreement for a marriage, right? I hope there's a lot of agreement in your marriage, but I hope that there's not agreement to test the spirit of the Lord. They should have found agreement for the Lord, not agreement against him. And I don't know if Ananias suggested this, or if Sapphira suggested it, or if they came to the idea together. But but if Ananias thought of it, and pressured Sapphira to do it, or to go along, he was wrong to do that, and she was wrong to go along with it. Can I just say that the concept of submission biblically, in whatever sphere you want to talk about, the concept of biblical submission does not extend into submitting unto sin. And she would have had every right to say, Ananias, I want no part of this. If you want to deceive God and deceive the church, if you want to lie to God in this way, that's your business. I have no part of it. But she didn't say that. And the tragic result right there in verses 10 and 11. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Fittingly, the same judgment came upon Sapphira that also came upon her husband Ananias. And since they shared the same sin, it was fitting that they share the same reaction to being found out. Such a shock and such a horror that they dropped down dead. Now, I need to explain something. 
Ananias and Sapphira both died on that day. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they did not go to heaven. Now, of course, it's impossible for us to say for certain, for only God knows. But, But we do know for certain that it is possible for a Christian to sin. And even, the New Testament will later use this phrase, sin unto death. And we have the example of New Testament examples, I should say, of saved Christians being, so to speak, brought home in death. Now, a true Christian does not lose his or her salvation by sinning. And so we can't say, well, look at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. You won't see them in heaven. Oh, no, very possibly so. But what a tragedy for them to have their effectiveness on this earth so effectively ended that God allowed the shock and the horror to afflict them so much. You know, many people relate this incident with Ananias and Sapphira connected with a person in the Old Testament in the days of Joshua. His name was Achan. Achan was a man who in the early days of Israel's conquest of Canaan, he disobeyed God by stealing unto himself part of that which was forbidden and was supposed to be just totally burned and destroyed because God didn't want them to profit from the conquest of the Canaanites. But but Achan didn't do this. And so he saw some gold and he saw some nice designer clothing and he stole that stuff and he hid it in the family tent thinking that nobody would find out. But God found out. And God told Joshua, and they exposed the sin of Achan, and God commanded that Achan be executed before the entire nation of Israel. There are some similarities there, both in the type of sin it was, and how it was found out, in the final punishment, and how about this, in the fact, in the fact that both of them desperately wanted to hide their sin in this way, and that this work happened at a time when the work of God was very new in both of these arenas, right? In Israel's initial conquest of Canaan, of these opening years of the church, we see a lot of similarities, but I'll tell you one very significant difference. When it came down to exercising the penalty upon Achan, God told Joshua and the people of Israel, you do it. In the church, God took it completely out of their hands, right? They would have nothing to do with it. This shows that the church has no place in administering such punishment itself or in having the civil authorities do it for them. But the end result of it was all, and you saw it right there in verse 11, great fear came upon all the church. Yeah, the work of God was not hindered. It went on with great strength. You almost might say this. In chapter 4, the devil attacked the church from the outside, right? And was unsuccessful. In chapter 5, what's the devil's motto? If I can't beat him, I'll join him. And see what I can do there. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work and the work of God went forward. Now, do you know what the name Sapphira means? It's an Aramaic name. The name Sapphira means beautiful. Do you know what the name Ananias means in Hebrew? It means God is gracious. But doesn't it seem like their names contradicted their lives? But I would say that we can still see the beauty 
and the graciousness of God in their lives in two very significant ways. First of all, if Ananias and Sapphira were actually heaven-bound despite their grievous sin, it shows that God was beautiful and gracious enough to not deny them salvation even for a terrible sin. But I would see the beauty and the graciousness of God in another way as well. The beauty and graciousness of God was also seen in the continued blessing of God upon the church. God protected it against not only the spiritual outside attack that we saw in Acts chapter 4, but also against itself. You see, if Ananias and Sapphira were filled with this grace, this would have pleased them. They would have said, Lord, if you take us home, fine. But let your work continue. Use us as a lesson to keep the church pure, even if we did not keep that purity in our own hearts. Let your name be glorified. Look at it here in verse 11. See at the end. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. You know what's significant about verse 11? That's the first time in the book of Acts that the word church is used. Isn't that sort of a disturbing context to have a first usage of church in the book of Acts? But wouldn't you say that in some sense this is a real church? It's not a perfect church. So sometimes don't we over-idealize the church of the book of Acts and act like it was all sweetness and light? No, 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 no. They had difficulties, but God was still moving and dealt with those difficulties among them. It was not a perfect church, but in the bigger context, we see that it was a giving church, was it not? It, it certainly was. And, and we see that it was a church that feared God. They certainly did. Then we see that it was a church where God continued to do amazing things. God was still doing them. But it was a church that pushed its people to be honest with God and one another. The story of Ananias and Sapphira makes us ask, God, do we really want a great move of your Holy Spirit among us? Do we really want that? If he does, there'll be a price for us to pay. And the price begins with just us being honest before God. Friends, there is something incredibly powerful about bringing the real you to the real Jesus. Now, we'll put forth the real Jesus as he's reflected in the scriptures. Now, you, you just bring the real you. And if the church you isn't the real you, why don't you just let the real you come to Jesus right now? Why don't you let the real you trust in him? Because God will transform the life of the real you.